Hello and welcome to Building Local Power, a podcast dedicated to thought-provoking conversations about how we can challenge corporate monopolies and expand the power of people to shape their own future. I'm Jess Fiaco, the host of Building Local Power and Communications Manager here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. For more than 45 years, ILSR has worked to build thriving, equitable communities where power, wealth, and accountability remain in local hands. And hello, everybody. Today, we are going to talk about merger policy. And before, if you're thinking I am not an economic policy wonk, I don't want to hear about merger policy, don't turn the episode off because it is going to be a great conversation. And I promise it'll be interesting for everybody. Joining me to talk about this are my colleagues, John Farrell and Stacey Mitchell, who are co-directors of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, as well as Ron Knox, who is a senior researcher with our independent business team. Welcome to the show, everybody. Hey, Jess. Thank you. So I can just give a little bit of a background, I think, before we dive into questions, although I'm sure I won't do as good of a job as everybody else will on this call, but I will do my best. So the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission recently announced that they are going to overhaul their guidelines around mergers. And ILSR has submitted comments which detail basically how these guidelines should change in order to stop corporate concentration and support a more decentralized economy. So with that kind of context, I think I'm actually going to start with asking Ron and Stacy to talk a little bit about the history of anti-merger legislation in the U.S. and how this enforcement has changed pretty dramatically over the course of the 20th century. Yeah, just thanks. So, you know, there is a lot of history, of course, behind the reason that we look at mergers in this country, the reason we prohibit mergers that would be bad for the economy, for, you know, for workers, for small business and for communities. But I think it's important to understand what the result is when we don't do that very well, when we don't stop those mergers. Like I think about beer a lot, not just because I enjoy beer, but you know, I do, but I also think about it because, you know, because it's a great example of how corporate concentration has really gotten out of control in this country and why. So for a long time, we've had two really dominant brewers, right? We have Budweiser, we have Miller Coors, they're the same company now. Um, and that's always been the case, but for, a, but for a good solid decade over the last 20 years, we had this explosion in craft brewers, all this amazing choice. And then what happens? Then you have the big brewers suddenly start to buy up some of these really nice, small, independent brands, push them out to stores, push them out to their distributors, who, of course, get the beer to shelves and to into bar taps. And suddenly you end up with not real choice, but this illusion of choice. And real small independent craft brewers get pushed out of the market. They can't find the shelf space and they can't get to their customers. And that's all because of mergers that largely went unchecked and uncriticized by uh, our antitrust agencies. And, you know, that's just one example. There are examples in everything else that affects our lives. We think about the meat we buy in the grocery stores. We think about the, the cell phones we use to, you know, talk to one another and to, and to get our information and so on. These are all really great and, you know, once very vibrant industries that have been concentrated down to massive corporate power through mergers. It's the kind of thing that we used to stop. We used to prevent in this country and we have a vibrant history of doing so. And that's kind of fallen by the wayside over the last four decades or so. Stacey, do you want to talk a little bit about the history of kind of where we were and where we are today? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's in some ways, it's like almost helpful to like just state like what how we think about mergers today, right? Like, so there's there's this, you know, idea that companies, they want to merge. 
And the federal antitrust agencies and the courts, they say like, is this merger gonna be good for consumers? Like we assume it's gonna be good for consumers because like bigger is better and scale is good. And only if we can really find like clear cut, very detailed evidence that it's somehow gonna be bad for consumers, are we gonna say no? Otherwise we're gonna say yes, right? Like this is the framework, if you you know follow the news a little bit, see mergers talked about, like this is the framework that has been the case for decades now. And for most Americans, it's the only framework that we're familiar with, which is like a big yes to mergers. And that idea that mergers are a good idea is like actually baked into the current policy and guidelines that the agencies use. If you read those current guidelines, it basically says, hey, there are lots of benefits to mergers. And so that's the world that we all live in and that no few Americans remember a time before. But if you go back, it's really striking. You know, Ron and I just did this deep looking back at the history around policy on the on mergers, and it's just a completely different world. You know, so Congress passed, you know, in the in 1890 and in 1914 laws that govern monopoly issues, including mergers. Those laws sort of limited mergers in some ways, but it wasn't until 1950 that Congress passed this very strong anti-merger law. And the reason that they did it was that in the aftermath of World War II, there was growing numbers of mergers. And the way that the Supreme Court had interpreted those earlier laws, Congress felt like was not what they intended. And it was leaving too much room for companies to be able to merge and not giving regulators enough tools to say no. And so in the late 1940s, over a couple of years, Congress looked very closely at this issue of mergers, had a lot of, of debate and discussion and hearings and so on. And in 1950, passed the seller Kefauver Anti-Merger Act. And what that law was designed to do is right there in the title, it is an anti-merger law. And it's so striking to go back and read it because it's very clear, we don't wanna see more consolidation we actually wanna block additional concentration and we wanna create the conditions in which industries could actually become deconcentrated. And the reason we wanna do that is we think it's critical for communities and for democracy. And so that was what was on the books. That's how the agencies and the courts interpreted merger law for decades. And then in 1982, we have a coup. Reagan comes in, a new bunch of thinking, and they basically overturn through agency issued guidelines overturn the law effectively by issuing new guidelines that take a totally different perspective on mergers. I want to talk about more about the ties between this anti-merger policy and our democracy and our you know, strong communities. But first, I do want to throw it to John to get his perspective on you know, what this looks like specifically in the energy sector. Yeah, um, you know, the, the story of mergers and concentration in the electricity business actually has very strong ties with our kind of overall economic health as a country. The Great Depression was in large part and the stock market crash driven by the merger and concentration of electric utility holding companies. So you had these very stable monopoly businesses that went out and bought all sorts of other businesses that were unrelated. And much like the mortgage crisis that happened more recently, People bought the stocks of utilities thinking they were very safe investments, and these holding companies collapsed under their own weight, basically inflating the value of all these subsidiaries and sort of hiding them behind the captive customers that they had as monopoly utility companies because they were given these designated customer areas by the state legislatures. So the Congress passed in 1935 the Public Utility 
Holding Company Act, which was meant to basically prevent this kind of behavior from happening in the future to say, utilities, you just need to act as utilities. You can't mix and match with all sorts of other industries to confuse customers. We need you to just be sort of straight-laced and narrow. And in 2005, uh, not too long after we did a lot of lifted a lot of other restrictions on mergers and finance, for example, we also had the Energy Policy Act that overturned the Public Utilities Holding Company Act and has enabled a wave of mergers in the utility industry, where you now have utility companies that have tens of millions of customers in many unrelated parts of the country, and you have a lot of problems with the way that utilities are essentially privatizing the wealth of these publicly granted monopolies through these merger deals that they make with one another. So transferring that wealth from the public, from the government uh, and, and transferring it to private shareholders. So without getting too much more in the weeds, I'll just say there's a lot of parallels to the merger problems we're seeing broadly in the economy and what we're seeing in the energy business as well, which is a huge sector for the economy and of course powers much of what we're able to do in the rest of the economy. Yeah, I want to jump back in because I think, I think look, we described a little bit about how we got to this point, but you know, to get back to kind of what I was originally like saying, I, I, I think it's impossible to overstate the effect that the this like four decade long wave of, you know, corporate mergers has had on the economy, on us as citizens, as workers, as entrepreneurs, small business owners. I mean, it just had this unbelievable effect. When we think about monopoly power all the time. We talk about monopoly power, but this is how we get to this point. This is how monopoly power comes to exist. It, it comes it, like it comes to be in lots of different ways, but mergers is like the freeway. It's like the expressway from a diversified and democratic economy to real monopoly power. And so what happens? So you allow these mergers to happen and you end up with, you know, it's like when Spider-Man like shoots a whole spider web at a villain. These mergers like shoot a whole spider web at the economy, every part of it, and really tamp down the ability for folks to earn a living, start a business, do all these kinds of things. So I talked about meat before. So you look at meat packing. What happens when you end up with all of these mergers in meat? The like a staple of the American diet and a staple of the economy, especially in kind of far flung, you know, rural parts of the country. So what happens? So, you know, at the moment, three or four massive meat processors control, you know, every kind of slice of, of, of the meat industry, whether it's beef or pork or chicken or whatever. They got that way because of mergers. And they, when those mergers happen, you end up with these massive companies that have what we call buyer power. They control the price that's paid for in economics talk. It's like inputs. But what are we talking about? We're talking about the price you pay for, for, you know, for cattle, the price you pay for, you know, for pork that's, you know, that's coming from farmers. So you have all these family farmers out there who are, who are already scraping by, trying to make a living, struggling in what is a very difficult industry. And then suddenly, the only place that these farmers and ranchers can sell their livestock is essentially one company or maybe two companies and they can absolutely dictate the price that's paid for you know for these products and so what happens so you have family farmers go out of business you have family farmers sell their farms to these massive farming conglomerates which is the only way that you know they can turn a profit and 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 you end up with a absolutely fractured rural economy and farmers who are hurting right then you go to supermarkets. Okay, so what happens? So you have all of these mergers in the supermarket sector. And these supermarkets end up with this massive buyer power. They have suppliers that sell into the supermarkets, just you know, small businesses or 
you know, whatever folks that, that sell produce or sell, sell refined goods or whatever. And you have these supermarkets who, who can absolutely dictate the price, not only the price that they pay for these things, but who, who they, you know, they can dictate the winners and losers in an entire economy. And it's the same for workers. Workers are just an input. If you're, if you're a worker who works in a, you know, farming community and you want to work in a meat processing plant, you probably really only have one option for that. And so that plant and that company can dictate your wages, what your working conditions are like, all of those kinds of things. And you end up with these exploited communities of workers out there who have no other option but to go to work every day for low wages in really dangerous conditions, you know, places where there are massive COVID outbreaks, all these kinds of things. It just has a snowballing effect across the economy when you let these mergers happen. And that's what we've seen for the last 40 years or so. And that's what, and that's what, that's what changing these guidelines is really intended to help. I, I love that you touched on all of the sort of all of the different components Ron. like how you as a worker can get screwed by this, how as a consumer, you're going to pay more for food, how as a producer, you're going to have a trouble getting your pr- products to market. There's one other thing I think from the energy sector that is sort of a useful lesson here is like, we also lose um, access to our uh, like political leaders that utility companies, for example, are among the biggest donors to state legislatures and state legislative campaigns. And, and they undercut then the, uh, the ability of our regulators to actually control and manage the size of these companies. They sort of become too big to be properly accountable. So I, it's a, I think it's a, there's a cost across the entire economy when companies get too big and the merger guidelines are at the heart of that. Fascinating to me, going back and reading a lot of the congressional record from that 1950 law, it is almost entirely focused on the political implications of consolidated power. And, you know, in the world we live in, where we talk very narrowly, not not even about economic implication, we talk very narrowly about consumer prices, and so narrowly even that we have mergers that, that directly harm consumers that get through even, we're so narrow about it. But you go back and look at that legislative history, and they touch some on the economic issues, but mainly it's about it's about political power and this notion that if you want to live in a, in a democracy where people could control their own fate, then you have to decentralize economic power. There's a there's a great quote that we have in our in our comment letter to the agencies um, from from uh, Senator Estes Kafaver, who was the lead co-sponsor of the bill. He says, through monopolistic mergers, the people are losing power to direct their own economic welfare. Local economic independence cannot be preserved in the face of consolidation such as we've had during the past few years. The control of American business is steadily being transferred from local communities to a few large cities in which central managers decide the policies and the fate of the, far, of the far-flung enterprises they control. It is really a message of, of local self-reliance and democracy that's embedded in that. And it's amazing to me, looking at that legislative history, to think of like how the, the hubris of the people who came in in the 1980s and were just like, nope, we're just going to erase all that, write our own rules and write a pro-monopoly policy in the face of very clear direction from Congress. And it's, <laughs> it's wild to go back and read some of that stuff from the 80s, because literally there are people who are like, Yes, we know what Congress said. Yes, we know what they were trying to do, but that we don't care now. We're just going to do the other thing because we think we're right and we think this is better. It's just, it's very like anti-democratic 
by its very nature, not only in what it was trying to do, which is overturn the will of Congress, but also in its effect in that it kind of like de-democratized the economy and put a lot of power in very few hands. Yeah, we've, I feel like we've implied this, but I don't know if we've explicitly really stated, I mean, is it correct to say that mergers are just out of control? Like if this is a highway to monopoly power, like, I don't, there's no speed limit. I don't know what, I don't know how to change that uh, imagery to fit this, but like, is that correct? Yeah, I mean, that is correct. I wrote an article for the American Prospect late last year, you know, really talking about this. The merger, this is not, so, so this is not hypothetical. The merger wave that we have experienced for the last four decades is now at its zenith. It is absolutely the most you know, breakneck pace of corporate mergers America has ever seen. At one point late last year, the the federal agencies were having to review 12 mergers a day. That was the number that was coming across their desk. Unbelievable pace of mergers. Why is this happening? In some cases, it's, you know, a lot of really big, powerful companies who are sitting on big piles of cash throughout the pandemic and waited for other companies to start struggling, and then they're buying. And they're not buying to just spend the money, they're buying to acquire market power. And you know that's what we're seeing at the moment. The agencies are really struggling under the weight of, of, of all of these mergers. And I think these new guidelines, the, the idea of changing the guidelines is to not only create some, you know, some structure around the way that mergers should be reviewed in this country and the way that corporate consolidation should be thought about, but, but also as a signal to corporate America, like you can't, you have to stop these, like some of these cannot happen and they can't have, and the way, and the way, and we can start talking about this. I don't know, Stacey, if you want to start to get into this, but the way that you stop some of these mergers and some of, and, and, and you, and you blunt the force of this wave of mergers that we're experiencing is you create structural boundaries where you tell corporate America, look, if you're concentrating an industry beyond this point, forget it. Don't even, don't come to us because we're going to tell you no, and we're going to sue you and we're going to go to court and we're going to win. That's really the idea behind, behind the guidelines. And that's some of our, <laughs> we hope that's the idea behind the guidelines. I shouldn't say that. That was the idea behind our recommendations to the agencies about like what they should do to, to, to actually, you know, stop some of these bad mergers from happening. But Stacey, I don't know if you want to talk more about that. Yeah. I mean, I think our chief recommendation was instead of calling them um, the merger guidelines, we should call them the anti-merger guidelines <laughs> in keeping with Congress's intent and setting like a new I'm being clear about the new direction and policy that at least we're hoping to see um, out of Washington. But yeah, that's absolutely right. Like this, this wave, it's hard to describe and it's strange that we're at this moment of, of a resurgence of interest in anti-monopoly policy. We are experiencing one of the biggest pushes by corporate America to consolidate power. And, you know, I think that the reason that, that this is that rewriting these guidelines, these po this policy has been such a top priority um, at the Department of Justice's Antitrust Division and at the Federal Trade Commission is is just exactly what Ron was saying. Like we need to try to figure out how to put a halt to this and and and, and really slow this down. You know, one of the recommendations that we made, and I think was certainly echoed in co other comment letters was this idea that we need to have some bright line rules that say, look, if, if a market is highly concentrated or if the companies that wanna merge have a lot of market power or they're very large, you know, any of, these, any of those sorts of triggers that above, above those thresholds, the answer is no. 
that that is just presumed to be illegal and those mergers are treated as as presumptively illegal and therefore the agencies don't have to spend a lot of time analyzing those mergers they can save that those staff resources to address you know a set of, of mergers that don't clear those guidelines we'll be right back after a very short break thanks for listening to our show if you're enjoying this episode i hope you'll consider heading over to ilsr.org donate to help support our work Your donations not only make this show possible, but you're also helping support our work across all of our programs to build local power in communities across the country. Head over to ilsr.org slash donate to contribute today. Any amount is sincerely appreciated. And even if you can't donate right now, you can support us in other ways, such as by rating or reviewing the show over at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Those reviews make a huge difference in how we can reach a wider audience. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. I'm curious if you, maybe Ron, if you could name, you know, another, uh, you know, what's, what else are we calling for in our recommendations for anti-merger guidelines? Well, I'll just name three things I think really quickly that I think are really important. So one is obviously the structural piece that, that I talked about before. So we're calling for the agencies to essentially reinstate some really clear, bright line structural limits on mergers. And when I say structural limits, what I mean is mergers that would concentrate an industry beyond a certain point should be considered illegal. And that if companies bring those kinds of mergers to the agencies, these guidelines are telling the companies, the agencies are going to sue to stop it. And you're going to have to go to court and we're going to fight it out in court. And the hope is that's usually enough to deter these kinds of mergers from happening. And the reason is because as Congress knew and understood in passing the anti-merger laws, and as the agencies correctly noted in the original merger guidelines, which were published in 1968, um, bad industry structures lead to bad outcomes. They lead to bad behavior. So if you have an industry that's an oligopoly, that just means there are three, four companies that absolutely dominate, you tend to have bad outcomes throughout the economy that I described, bad outcomes for workers, bad outcomes for small businesses that have to interact with these companies, bad outcomes for shoppers, bad outcomes for communities, right? High prices, low wages, all all, all the things. So rather than having to go through these mergers one by one at the agency level and say, okay, what do we think this merger is going to do? What do we think are the, you know, the companies are telling us it's going to be okay. It's going to be more efficient. They're going to save money. What do we think? You just, instead of doing all that, which is a waste of time and money and resources, and you're also having to look into a crystal ball and try to figure out what, what a merger is going to do. Instead, you just say, no, you just say, if you, if there are five massive companies in an industry and this merger is going to Reduce that number by one, you're going to leave four, forget it. Don't bring it to us. We're not going to do it. So I think that's one recommendation. A second that I think is really important is a renewed and maybe you know heightened emphasis on the potential for what we call vertical mergers to harm competition. We say vertical mergers, we mean mergers between companies at different points in, in industry. So 
one company that makes car parts merging with an automobile manufacturer, for example. But this, but you know what I mean. At the moment, the current guidelines essentially say all of these mergers, they're not only they're not only not bad, they're often they're often good. And they and they lead to all these efficiencies. I'm not going to get too into efficiencies, but it's basically you know corporate speak for we're going to make more money and it's fine. So <laughs> to, to give to give the short answer, so these mergers happen, and even when the government tries to challenge these mergers in court, which they have over the last five six years, they often fail, largely because the guidelines say they're fine. Don't you don't believe it. Don't believe that these, these, these things are going to be bad. And the result has been increased industry concentration, corporate concentration, more power in the hands of a few very powerful corporations that then have the ability to really close off uh, industries to you know new companies, outside competition, and so on. So we think they're quite bad, and we think that the, the new guidelines really need to reflect that. And the third thing is kind of like I mentioned earlier, you know, we want there to be a spotlight on this idea that mergers can create buyer power, the power for massive corporations to control the price that are paid for everything from labor to raw goods, to farm goods, to all those kinds of things in the economy. We think that that's really the kind of power that tends to hurt small independent businesses and to really drain resources and 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 you know money out of communities and leave communities more you know, more hollow, more reliant on massive uh, out-of-state corporations and so on. So we just, so we think that the agencies should really be focusing a lot of their analysis of mergers on the possibility for those mergers to create really powerful buyers in the economy. Stacey, did you have anything else you wanted to add about our recommendations? Well, I realized that we're going into a list, which is exactly what you wanted to avoid. (laughs) The two things that I would say is, you know, one of the things we talk about is that the the agencies should look at that the overall health of a, of a market or an industry. And in doing that, they should look at, are there a diverse mix of businesses of different sizes? Is it easy for new businesses to start in that market? So really, we're kind of bringing back a lot of the original goals that Congress laid out in 1950, which was this idea of decentralized markets with lots of local small businesses, lots of competition for labor and therefore higher wages, you know, all, all of those kinds of ideas. And so one of our recommendations to the agencies is not only to look at the two companies that are merging, but to really look closely at like whether the market that they're in is actually a healthy market. And if not, that's really a merger that should be scrutinized. And then the other thing I would name is that we've we've said a no remedies policy. And you know, for people who aren't familiar with this notion of remedies, like the agencies have become very, you know, not only do they say, you know, not only do they not challenge huge numbers of mergers, but even if they feel like one is going to be problematic, what they more often than just saying no or, or trying to block it is that they impose a remedy and they say, oh, okay, well, just don't behave this way and we'll monitor you over time. Just make sure you don't behave in that negative way with your market power. And the evidence is that corporations merge and then they they violate all of that stuff and there's no putting the genie back in the bottle right and these these remedies are not in fact remedies they don't fix anything and so one of the things we've really called for is stop doing that you know if, if a merger is bad you should just block it period there's no solution to it 
That's actually really interesting because it's uh, there are parallels in the electric industry. There's a pretty egregious example where Pepco, which is a fairly large utility that has since been subsumed by another one, but bought a smaller utility in Maryland. The regulators were concerned about sort of the balance of benefits for shareholders and customers. So Pepco said, well, we'll give everybody a rate credit of like 50 bucks in the next year off their electric bill. And then subsequently went in and asked for a rate hike that ate up the entire rate credit, which was approved. And so it's just a perfect illustration. Uh, and, and there's routinely in these merger guidelines, and Scott Hempling, who was a guest on Building Local Power last year, talked about this. There's sort of this like buy-off provision, essentially, where they say, okay, we recognize that shareholders are going to get like a billion dollars in benefits from this. So we want you to give like 10% of that to the customers in these short-term benefits and sort of ignoring the fact that those companies can come right back to regulators and often do and ask for a rate hike of the cap. And these are captive customers. You know, they don't have choices in the electric industry. It's particularly egregious because you don't have competition at all. And then these merged companies simply continue to milk the cow of the captive customers. So it, it really is incredibly problematic to assume that it will be sufficient to have oversight as a substitute for keeping companies of a manageable size. And I'll just point out that, that these short-term benefits that the companies often promise the regulators to let these mergers through, they don't always, ha- they don't happen, you know, half the time anyway, particularly when it comes to things that really benefit communities, like we're going to create jobs, we're going to, we're going to do these kinds of things. Once the deal closes and it's out the door, that's it. You don't, you don't get it, you know, the companies can then do whatever they want and they, and they tend to do that, which is why this no remedies policy that we're, that we're advocating for, we think is so, is so important because you can't, you can't go back and undo it. You know, I mean, you can, but, but that's, but that's much harder than just saying no in the first place. I just want to say that it's sort of like problems you have with parenting. It's like, once you give your kid permission to do something, it's a lot harder to go back and be like, actually, I don't want to let you eat candy at five o'clock every day than it would have been to say no in the first place. Yes, correct. (laughs) We've talked a lot about the consequences of bad merger policy, but I'm curious, just in attempts to, to end on an optimistic note here, like what say the agencies read our you know, these comments from us and they're like, great ideas. We're going to do all this. What would that change, you know, in different industries or for local economies, if we were to have stronger anti-merger laws and anybody can feel free to jump on that. I think one of the things is that, you know, electricity is an essential service for all of us. You need it to power your devices, to refrigerate your food, to provide heating and cooling to your home. Utilities turned off the power millions of times during COVID for people who couldn't pay their bills because they lost their jobs. And, and, and we have found two examples, a recent study by Center for Biological Diversity and some research by the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, that it's larger utilities that tend to shut off the power more, like on a per customer basis than smaller utilities. So one of the potential significant benefits here, and it has, I want to just emphasize, it's, it's sort of a two-phase benefit. One is they'll stop turning off the power to people who can't afford it to be off, right? Like you can't be a participant in the modern economy without power. So number one, that benefits broadly everybody. But number two, it's specifically important for most the most marginalized and vulnerable communities. The folks on the margins, the ones who have high energy bills, the ones who have low income, often communities of color, they're the ones that get their power shut off the most through these really harsh policies. They're the ones that take the brunt of the pain from these very large utility companies that are like 
simultaneously cutting off power to people and increasing CEO compensation. That's the kind of thing that we can stop if we are more effectively managing the size of the corporations, making them more accountable locally to our state officials, to our local communities. I think that's absolutely right. And you know, one of the things we said in our comment letter is that the agency should measure success by the degree to which the economy actually deconcentrates. You know, So instead of becoming more concentrated, we want to see industries become less and less concentrated. And that's the key to success. And you know, we, you know, there's lots of, of incredible changes that would happen if that if that comes to pass. We know, for example, that in regions of the country and in industries where there are more smaller scale businesses that we see higher wage growth, we see a bigger middle class, less extremes of rich and poor. We also, and we talk a lot about this sociological research in our comment letter, but we, there's a whole body of research that finds that communities where there's a degree of local control over economic resources, where you have, you know, you're not just colonized by Walmart and a big, you know, big outside corporations, but you actually have a local economy that's controlled locally. That in those kinds of communities, there, you know, all things being equal, there are like higher levels of civic engagement, people know their neighbors more, they're more likely to participate in community events, they even vote more often than people who live in communities that are, you know, an, the, the big outside corporation is, is, is the dominant part of the economy. So there's a, a ton of upside to actually thinking about how do we decentralize? And you think about in this moment when, you know, not only do we have all of this consolidation, but, you know, we haven't really touched on it yet in this conversation, like our economy is like actually failing. Like our ability to buy basic goods and services is like coming to a halt in a lot of sectors. And you know, there's some supply chain issues certainly with COVID, but a lot of when you start to look, what it is is that we've we've so consolidated production and distribution that we've actually got like massive market failures where like just the basic infrastructure of our economy is no longer succeeding. It's become very brittle, it's lost its resilience. And so you think about the potential of like re of like a rebirth of businesses and economic activity by controlling corporate power and how beneficial that would be. And particularly if we do it right, how beneficial it would be for, as John noted, communities that have been so marginalized by what's happened over the last 50 years, you know, black and brown communities, rural areas. I mean, there's a lot that could really come from a concerted like decentralization of the economy policy initiative by, by the federal government. I've got nothing to add. It's exactly, it's exactly it. Deconcentrate the economy and everything benefits. Everyone benefits, especially communities and preventing big mergers, big concentrations of corporate power is a great place to start in that, in that process. Also, I want to have a choice about airlines. I live in a small city and like, if I want to go to any place, there's only one option really for me. And, you know, just stuff like that is just amazing that we live, we have been living with and tolerating that. Uh, and I'll just, and just to put, put a cherry on that, they, it's because of mergers, just to make it clear. It's because of mergers, <laughs> because of mergers. 20 years ago, there were nearly a dozen you know, different national domestic airlines that flew all over the country and could connect smaller places, smaller cities with bigger places. People had to go for work or for, or for, for just for travel, whatever. Now we have three, one, two, three real, real like national domestic carriers. And then we have a couple low cost carriers that maybe go here and there. And 
I realize not everyone flies. I realize that an, an, an airline ticket isn't like buying meat at your grocery store, but it all matters. It all matters. And it's all, it's all because of mergers. But speaking of grocery stores though, I mean, I, there are so many different ways in which the concentration does affect availability. So, you know, we've had this like laser like focus thanks to the sort of like hijacking of our merger policy on the cost of an item, right? So the cost of airfare, the cost of meat, you know, what, what have you. And yet the problem is availability. So, you know, we've done research on pharmacies, for example, in North Dakota and found that a robust, independent, deconcentrated con economy of pharmacies means there are actually more pharmacies in more places closer to where you live and it happens to be very competitively priced. Grocery stores, right? We have these food deserts where people can't get fresh food because the merged grocery store businesses don't want to locate in those places, but they're so big and dominant that there's no air, there's no oxygen in the economy to allow smaller grocers in to flourish and, and to offer those opportunities. You see that in airfare, you see it in cell phone plans, right? Like you go on the internet and it's like, there's a million different names for cell phone plans, but they're basically all rolled up as like subsidiaries of the big three carriers. And you're subject to their terms on all of them. And all of them cost more than what we would pay in Europe in a truly competitive, like mobile phone plan economy. So we have, I think, really good evidence for when markets are competitive, we not only get more choice and, and options and convenience, but we also pay lower prices as well. All of those things are good as consumers that we can get out of this. That's such a good point. That is such a good point. And one step kind of further, you know, when uh, you know it, it's it's very true that this like merger wave has made the america you know the american economy more fragile less resilient less able to to actually provide all the things that people need it has made things harder to get so it's created food deserts it's created you know places around the country that were once bright and vibrant and like functional places now be essentially dollar store and Walmart deserts and so on. But the, you know, but the, but the real impact of this is that you allow these mergers to happen and what that looks like on the ground, what, you know, the fragility of our economy looks like on the ground is that you have places like here in Illinois, where there used to be a Maytag factory where people earned a middle-class living working union jobs, Maytag and Whirlpool merge, and suddenly you don't need that factory anymore. So now not only is the, you know, the supply chain disrupted, but a thousand people who used to have real good jobs in a factory in a small town in Illinois are lost and they're awash and they don't, and there's, and nothing's coming in to replace those things. And all you have to do is stop the mergers and those, and those twin problems of both harming the, the overall economy and crushing these small towns, these factory towns, they both stop. And that's that's really what we're trying to get at. I have one last thing on the hopeful note, which is that, you know, the fact that we're having this conversation about merger policy and the agencies are gonna rewrite them and lot, you know, this is like back in the news, back in public debate, back part of what everyday Americans are engaged in thinking about and is like a is a very hopeful sign because not that many years ago, 
the only thing happening around merger policy was happening behind closed doors, controlled by economists and lawyers, you know, very much out of democratic oversight. So that in and of itself is, I think, a really clear sign of the kind of progress that, that we're making right now. Right. And I just want to remind folks who are listening that if you want to dig into the the actual our recommendations around these anti-merger guidelines, you can find them linked on the webpage for this episode. Thank you, everybody. Any final final comments or notes you want to say before we sign off? I know we could probably talk about this for another hour, but we are running out of time. None for me. Thanks, Jess. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Jess. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Building Local Power podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can find links to everything discussed today by going to ilsr.org and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our many newsletters and connect with us on social media. We hope you'll also take the opportunity to help us out with a gift that helps produce this very podcast and supports the research and resources we make available for free on our website. Finally, we ask that you let us know how we're doing with a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. The show is produced by me, Jess Elfiaco, and edited by Drew Birschbach. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunctional. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Jess Elfiaco, and I hope you'll join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power.